You're listening to Columbia Radio News. It's December 19th. I'm Tori Letts. And I'm Chris Riata. The holidays are just around the corner and coronavirus infections are soaring. New Yorkers share their frustrations over endless wait times at testing sites across the city. It's got to be free. We got to test everybody. We got to do the best kind of test and we got to do it fast because people matter. And what about the recently approved COVID vaccines? A reporter at Gothamist explains what the vaccination rollout may look like for New York. Meanwhile, California is still suffering from the impacts of a historically brutal fire season. Residents say insufficient emergency alerts are adding to the panic. A lot of thoughts going through my head, like, which of these clothes do I want and which of these can burn in a fire? All those stories and more on the show today. But first, here's the local news. For Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Taylor Jung. Governor Andrew Cuomo now says he'll wager $100 that New York can avoid another shutdown. And a shutdown is totally avoidable. Totally. I believe New Yorkers can slow the spread and that hospitals can manage the increase. Those are the two variables. The news is a stark contrast to last Monday's press conference when Cuomo said that he would declare a full shutdown if numbers showed hospitals would be at 90 percent capacity within three weeks. A report released yesterday by the NYPD's Department of Investigations finds that the NYPD's response to the George Floyd protests heightened tensions and undermined public confidence. It goes on to say senior officials made several missteps and that policing decisions were made based on faulty intelligence. The Department of Investigations also says some officers deployed did not have adequate training in policing protests. In a pre-recorded video statement released on Twitter, Mayor Bill de Blasio says he agrees. But the point still is, we have to do better. I have to do better. Our police department has to do better. We have to hear people's voices and respect the will of the people while also keeping people safe at all times. That's not easy. The city's plan to randomly test school children for COVID-19 who are attending in person might not be reaching all students. That's according to Gothamist. PS 107 John W. Kimball Elementary School in Park Slope hasn't tested students in one of two groups attending in person. The school currently has a 0% COVID-19 positivity rate. In a school newsletter, Principal Eve Litwack says she expressed concern to the superintendent that only one cohort has been tested. Mayor Bill de Blasio has promised parents and teachers that, quote, testing would be rigorous throughout the year. And saying it's chilly is only an understatement. Bundle up because it's 27 degrees in New York City today and the high isn't much warmer, just 34 degrees. Tomorrow, there will be a mix of snow and rain, with a stretch of a few partly cloudy days, with temperatures in the high 30s and low 40s. Currently, we are slated to have rain on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, although it will be a little bit warmer. Taylor Jung, Columbia Radio News. Thanks, Taylor. COVID rates are continuing to increase in New York City, and that means ridiculously long lines across the five boroughs. Many have taken to Twitter to post line updates and document the wait times. Columbia Radio News reporter Ilika Mahajan visited a few lines to tell us why people are waiting so long and how they're making it work. Lines wrap around the blocks, 
snaking through the towering buildings of New York City. Usually when you see lines like this, it's outside sneaker stores or the hottest new clubs. Not this time though. The people tapping their toes in these lines have a COVID test to look forward to at the end. And sometimes the wait has been over six hours long. Not for Christopher Swain though. He decided to go line hopping to end up here in Borum Hill. He was coming back from New England and thought he would check the lines in Westchester earlier and... And they have an eight hour wait. He says they tried to make that seem not so bad. They put the 90 people waiting there on a list, broke them into chunks, and told them when to come back later. But he says, even so... That's pretty bad. I didn't do it. I just figured I'll do it here in Brooklyn. So Swain and his partner Paget Walker are making it work. After all, even this isn't as bad as Walker's previous experience. If you had talked to me 10 days ago when I was waiting freezing cold for an hour and a half and then they cut off the line, two people in front of me after waiting for... <laughs> but she needed to get a test before going home. And I had to go to a hotel for the night um, because I wasn't, couldn't be tested until the next day. It was really stressful for the two of us. <laughs> Swain feels really frustrated by the situation, especially because other places are nailing it. New Zealand can do it, Iceland can do it, right? Germany can kind of do it. But like, why, I don't, I think we do need a federal mandate to be like, okay, it's gotta be free, we gotta test everybody. We gotta do the best kind of test and we gotta do it fast because yeah. people matter, people's lives matter, people's health matters. Across Brooklyn, in the rain in bed Jamie's had a different experience. He didn't want to give his last name. Okay, I've only been here like 10 minutes, so if you're looking for a story on people who've waited a really long time, I'm not the person to ask. He got lucky. Even after the center had been telling people on the phone that they had closed the line for the day, when Jamie got there, there were only about three people in line, and they let him join. He has sympathy for people who have had to wait much longer, though. Like him, before Thanksgiving, when he waited six hours to get tested. I got here like 30 minutes before they opened in the morning, and definitely like more than 100 people uh, in front of me when I got there. This disparity, some people waiting a long time and some only 10 minutes, is not a mystery to Dr. Maureen Miller, an epidemiologist and medical anthropologist at Columbia University. She says that the neighborhoods more heavily affected by the virus are actually also the ones with the shortest lines. And there's a reason for this. The testing is not as clearly promoted there's also, it is the clinic schedule. So that schedule is, uh, you know, eight to four. People are working during those hours, especially essential workers who live in neighborhoods that are highly impacted. So Miller is worried about the short lines, but also the long lines, because we have one of the largest, most accessible testing systems in the nation. And the fact that I walk down this of New York City and see these tremendously long lines of people waiting to get tested tells me that it is so much worse in the rest of the country. And according to Miller, it may be about to get worse. We are approaching the end of the year and states are going to need to balance their budgets, but tax revenue is way down. COVID testing? It's expensive. So she's afraid that we might see states pull back their recovery efforts. And the government is going to have to start closing down some of the efforts that they are spending on to make sure that we try to keep things under control. But Mayor de Blasio has a positive reassuring message for New Yorkers. Says those wait times for tests are going to go down as more test centers open. 
Testing from the very beginning has been the core to every effective strategy. And testing is what we are doubling down on now in New York City. We have the highest testing capacity we've ever had since the coronavirus began. Back in Borum Hill, though, Sean Rembold's daughter thinks she just has... 10 minutes. ...left in line. She is closer to 45. The good news is... I like tested. You like getting tested? Yeah. We'll see. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Ilika Mahajan. Welcome back to Columbia Radio News. I'm Chris Riata. Hearing about the long lines at coronavirus test sites may have you wondering how long it will take to get your COVID vaccine. Gothamist reporter Sydney Pereira joins us through Zoom to give us the scoop on how and when New Yorkers can expect to get vaccinated. Sydney, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Okay, so get us up to speed here. How many Pfizer doses have been delivered to New York City this week after it was approved for emergency authorization by the FDA? And how many more can the city expect to see in the days ahead? Uh, on Sunday, some 250,000 doses, or the first of those at least, of the Pfizer vaccine were shipped across the country, including New York City. And um, so New York City is expecting about 250,000 doses of that particular vaccine that was um, authorized for emergency use last week. And so sometime next week, um, the beginning of more than 200,000 doses of the Moderna vaccine are anticipated to arrive. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are already lining up for the Pfizer vaccine. I'm sure plenty of people will for Moderna. Which New Yorkers are being prioritized and put to the front of those lines? Great question. Um, Similar to lots of places around the country and similar to the federal uh, recommendations around this, the first people getting vaccinated are uh, hospital workers and long-term care facility residents as well as staff at those facilities. And so facilities like that include nursing homes. The city, as well as New York State, have opted into a federal program to vaccinate long-term care facility residents, like those nursing home residents and, and the staff that, that works at those facilities that I mentioned. Um, the way that program works is Walgreens and CVS pharmacy staff will administer the vaccine at those facilities. Um, that program is expected to begin as soon as December 21st, um, around that time. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned Walgreens. I actually got an email the other day from Walgreens that said, I'll soon be able to schedule my own coronavirus vaccine appointment. Can the rest of us who aren't, you know, at the front of those lines eventually expect to be really signing up and getting our COVID vaccines at CVS or Walgreens? <laughs> That's uh, really interesting. You have already gotten that Um email from Walgreens. As for when other New Yorkers can get the vaccine, it really depends on a couple things. Um, One of those, of course, is supply and availability of the vaccine. It kind of depends also on what the next priority groups are. The city's health department has indicated it is waiting on guidance from the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for the next phases within the first phase. So phase 1A was Uh, hospital workers, and long-term care facility residents and staff. Phase 1B and 1C, those are to be determined. Um, I I believe there's actually a vote on those next phases. Um, Sunday is still kind of to come, but we can really expect the next phases beyond healthcare workers, long-term care facility residents and staff to be other high-risk individuals and more essential workers like 
first responders and other uh, workers in critical industries, whether it's transit, as well as people at risk of severe disease from the virus because of other health conditions um, or their age, for that matter. So still a, a bit of time until the majority of New Yorkers are walking into their Walgreens or their CVS for their, their COVID shot. Um, but still, you know, there, there's a considerable amount of skepticism surrounding this vaccine. And I'm wondering if you can just quickly walk us through some of that and any other issues you think the city may face during the distribution process. Yeah, well, uh, the city's own survey um, on vaccine hesitancy found about um, just over half of respondents to their survey would get vaccinated. And uh, one fifth said they would not get vaccinated at all. And we can expect that to, to change um, as, as as we know more about different vaccines and how effective they are. But this is something that the city is uh, trying to proactively address through a, the, a vaccine command center that they launched to really make sure the vaccine is equitably distributed and conduct uh, outreach with communities who may not trust the vaccine or just may not know a lot about the vaccine. So just making sure information is getting out to New Yorkers. Can I ask, do you have any personal concerns? Are, are you planning on getting the vaccine? <laughs> I I would get the vaccine if um, it was my turn in line and if it was appropriate for, for the groups that should be prioritized. Sydney, thanks so much for joining Columbia Radio News. Thanks for having me. This is Tori Lutz. Now we look over to California where fires are a major issue. More than 4 million acres burned this year and over 30 people have died in wildfire incidents. Michelle Quinn reports for Columbia Radio News from Irvine, California, about how some residents in Southern California are frustrated by the lack of clear and accessible messaging in citywide emergency alerts and why New York may be affected the same way. On the morning of October 26, the Silverado fire erupted in Orange County. Danny Yang, who lives in North Irvine, was at home with her dad when she noticed their house filling with smoke. It actually started pretty much behind my house. That was one of the first areas where the fire reached Irvine. I looked out my window and there was basically this patch of ground that was burning. I could see it burning and it was actually really concerning because it was just so close to the house. Then the first emergency alert came and stated only that certain neighborhoods were under mandatory evacuation orders. A lot of thoughts going through my head, like which of these clothes do I want and which of these can burn in a fire? The alert Yang received looked like an Amber Alert, the type of notification that takes over your screen when a child goes missing. I actually don't remember the sound very well, and the alert itself actually didn't have that much information. Yang and her dad packed up what they could and left. She was scared, especially when she realized her dad forgot his heart medication and they needed to go back. So I think the uncertainty and just not knowing what was going on at all was the biggest thing that angered me about the whole thing. Just having to rely on social media to get all the information and of course not knowing how much of that was actually true or whether it was being exaggerated or not. Yang's mom was at work at the time in a nearby city. She wasn't receiving any citywide alerts or updates and was completely panicking. The official alerts only extended to a certain radius within the city of Irvine and were solely in English. Yang's parents are both immigrants who are native Mandarin speakers, and Yang's mom ended up using WeChat for information. 
So she was in a WeChat group and they were basically just passing along some actually like social media posts and a lot of people just giving their personal experiences with what they did. So I definitely think there's room for error just because they weren't officially translated resources. The alert system's lack of language accessibility impacted many residents. Yur Wong is another Irvine resident whose family is not fluent in English. They depended on her to find and translate updates. My parents just kind of put me in charge of checking the evacuation maps. And in the end, we couldn't tell if we should leave or not. Wong received the same Amber Alert type evacuation notices Yang mentioned earlier. She says that she was sent a total of three official alerts over the course of the week, and that this wasn't enough. She found the alerts confusing and said they lacked key information. Usually they said something like north of Blank Street, east of Blank Street, west of Blank Street, like under a mandatory evacuation order. And I don't know these streets like that. Bobby Simmons is a city of Irvine's emergency management administrator. He was in charge of sending out all official updates and alerts. He explained the reasoning behind mainly using the Amber style alerts. This is a very effective tool because it requires no opt-in and it will hit almost every cell phone within a given geofence, again, whatever that threatened area is. The Amber style messages were available only in English. Irvine is a majority-minority city with heavy immigrant population and diverse language needs. Simmons admitted that this was a grave shortcoming in choosing to use the emergency wireless alerts. Yeah, they were. They only went out uh, in English. Um, that doesn't help us much. What we need is <laughs> we need Mandarin, we need Korean, we need Vietnamese, and we need Farsi. Cities can only create opt-in text notification systems. Wireless emergency alerts, such as Amber Alerts, require authorized access to mobile carriers and are run by a federal agency, FEMA. While this federally-based emergency system is the most efficient, it doesn't support alerts in languages other than English and now Spanish. Um, you know, language is definitely uh, a gap that the world of emergency management continues to work towards. But unfortunately, those alerts, uh, we're, we're just not there yet. Simmons described how emergency responders overcame the language barrier in other ways. When all else fails, we're going into neighborhoods, we're knocking on doors, we're, you know, they may not understand English, but they understand pointing at smoke and an officer, you know, using hand gestures to say, you gotta go, you gotta leave. Simmons emphasized that a year's worth of preparation had gone into the city's emergency wildfire response. He believes it paid off. Thankfully, we didn't lose a single life or even a single pet's life uh, in this disaster. Yang is grateful to be safe, but she's also frustrated. There was just no clarity. I think the administration could have been handled a lot better. Wong pointed out that it's well past fire season in California and that she's never experienced something like this in the 25 years she's lived here. We should look to these fires as a sign of climate change quickly happening. And the fact of the matter is that stuff like this is going to become more and more common as the years go by. With natural disasters increasing due to climate change, it's important for cities with diverse populations such as Irvine and New York City to be better prepared for emergency response. Michelle Quinn, Columbia Radio News. Coming up, we hear about how the pandemic has forced an iconic Chinatown institution to close its doors. 
Then we talk about mental health during COVID and how one local restaurant is fighting to stay afloat. First, here's what's happening across the country. For Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Precious Osagaresa. A government shutdown has been avoided, for now that is. The House and Senate passed a two-day extension of government funding yesterday to keep agencies operating until tomorrow night. But lawmakers will stay in Washington over the weekend. They need to hammer out the long-awaited pandemic relief package. The $900 billion stimulus is expected to include money for COVID-19 vaccines, unemployment benefits, and small business loans. People below a certain income could be sent $600 stimulus checks. That's half the amount given under the March stimulus law. Legislators are hoping to avoid a shutdown next week, but to do that, they'll need 100 senators to agree to schedule a vote. The Food and Drug Administration has voted to recommend approval of Moderna's vaccine. This is the second coronavirus vaccine authorized for emergency use. A Centers for Disease Control and Prevention advisory panel is meeting this weekend to vote on the next tiers of people who should get the vaccine. If all hurdles are cleared, Moderna's vaccine could be given in the U.S. next week, joining Pfizer, which rolled out this week. Millions of Americans are mulling over whether they'll take the vaccine, especially African Americans. According to a Kaiser Family Foundation study, nearly a third of African Americans are hesitant. Dr. Anthony Fauci is the country's top infectious disease expert. He says the new Moderna vaccine should make African Americans a little less apprehensive. So the first thing you might want to say to my African-American brothers and sisters, is that the vaccine that you're gonna be taking was developed by an African-American woman. And that is just a fact. Fauci praised Dr. Kizmekia Corbett and the Moderna team on their groundbreaking efforts doing an interview for preventcovid.org. We're beginning to see temperatures drop as we head into the week of Christmas. It's 32 degrees today and mostly sunny. Tomorrow, the high is 38 degrees. You'll need to get your umbrellas out as we expect to see a few showers. This may cause for some ice spots on the road. You'll want to be careful while driving. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Precious Osagirase. Stay with us after the break. You are listening to Columbia Radio News. I'm Chris Riata. And I'm Tori Lutz. Pearl River Mart has been a Chinatown staple for nearly 50 years. Economic troubles brought on by the coronavirus pandemic are now forcing the store to shut down and move. It's just one of many examples of how small businesses are being forced to pivot because of the pandemic. But the neighborhood has been suffering long before any lockdowns were in place. Columbia News reporter Taylor Jung reports on what the store's closure means for Chinatown and how the area is hoping to survive. When the iconic Pearl River Mart announced on December 4th that it was closing its flagship location, the community responded with outpouring support. It was similar to the love the store felt over the summer when people made the trek to visit during the pandemic. Um, thankfully, our customers are so loyal and they you know, came on their bikes, like from Brooklyn, you know, just to support us, which was amazing. That's Joanne Kwong, president of Pearl River Mart and the daughter-in-law of Mr. and Mrs. Chen, as they're known. The couple founded the store in 1971 and since then have always offered a cornucopia of Chinese housewares and goods to the masses, and in recent years provided a space for artists to showcase their work. The store has had to move around several times. Almost everybody who comes in 
they say like, oh, you know, I grew up with the original Pearl River. Almost all of them are wrong about <laughs> which one was the original Pearl River. It's the fifth flagship store for Pearl River Mart. They had a few locations in Chinatown and eventually migrated to Soho in the early 2000s. That's where they were before moving down the street to the border of Tribeca and Chinatown in 2016. So I think we were kind of maybe in the first couple of months like at 50%. Um, but by the time March rolled around, we were certainly at that 10 to 20% revenue mark. Rent at the Soho location had gone up from $1 million a year to $6 million a year. And so they left. Kwong said they're moving again because the rent cost is still high. Their landlord won't budge and they're just not making the same money. Business started declining in January of this year. For better or for worse, like every neighborhood that they were in improved. Um, and they were always priced out at the end of, let's say, a 12-year lease or a 15-year lease. It's a reality that most businesses are facing in the neighborhood and nationwide. But what is different about Chinatown is that the economy has been declining since December, when the world first heard about COVID-19. But if there's anyone who could tell you about the state of Chinatown, it's this guy. Uh, Colin Chan. I'm a community activist and advocate and a longtime resident of the Chinatown area. Chan spoke about how usually Chinatown draws crowds for Lunar New Year. The sidewalks are packed to the brim with confetti, parades, and dancing. He said that crowds can usually get 10 people deep. Uh, you go on from the curb all the way against the building and it's packed. You can't even walk. But in 2020? But this year, you know, there's only one, you know, one or two people. Um, part of that has to do with the xenophobic sentiment that came out of the coronavirus and how it's kind of spread. That's Ling Song, a product lead for Send Chinatown Love. The volunteer-run nonprofit is one of several new community efforts that's popped up this year to help revive the neighborhood's businesses. Song said racist terms like Chinese virus or Kung flu didn't help. People told her organization that they were seeing over a 50% decrease in revenue even before the city went into lockdown. So when people stopped visiting Chinatown and even locals around the neighborhood stopped visiting, that was really devastating on the neighborhood's economy. And there are some places that might never come back. Hopshing, a dim sum restaurant on the Bowery, closed early in the pandemic because their lease was up and they chose not to renew. Or 88 Lanzhou, a dumpling and noodle restaurant that, despite a heavy social media campaign from fans, it shut down because of all the rent they needed to pay back. Song says often the biggest obstacle for businesses in Chinatown is... How much rent they have to pay back and how landlords are not necessarily being very forgiving in a lot of cases once COVID has kind of, you know, really devastated the revenue of these businesses. And the situation is more complicated than just rent. According to another organization, Welcome to Chinatown, store owners might not always be fluent in English and can navigate services or changing laws. And the city is offering a $100,000 loan to lower middle-income storefronts in certain zip codes, but it's not available to this neighborhood. But incredibly, uh, 10013, a zip code that includes most of Chinatown down here, and Tribeca, a nearby wealthy neighborhood, was not included on that list. So, you know, I mean, we, we suffered early, but yet we're not included on, on the interest-free loans. The community, though, is pulling together to save itself. Organizations like Send Chinatown Love or Welcome to Chinatown are rallying financial support for businesses. 
Chan has also created several programs to clean the streets and bring visitors back to the area. All right, we, we, we don't throw, we don't throw, we don't bury our heads in your, and, and give up, throw our hands up and say, oh, we give up, right? Because you'll never survive if you don't fight. And Pearl River Mart, that's exactly what they're doing. It's not the first time they've had to close a business, and they announce the news now so they can take a break. This lets their customers, their employees, and of course, themselves, grieve the loss of this store. In the face of economic uncertainty, they will relocate and rebuild. Columbia Radio News, Taylor Jung. There's been a lot of talk about COVID in 2020, but what about mental health and other health-related topics? Mark Johnson, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel's health and science reporter, joins us now by phone. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, okay, that's fine, that's fine. Okay, so to jump into it, what have you noticed about mental health trends and concerns during the pandemic? I do know that I've seen a lot of reports um, secondarily talking about the effects uh, that the pandemic has had on, on mental health. There's a whole range of um, kind of outer ripples, and mental health is one of those. I think it's going to become clearer in a few years from now exactly how it has affected um, people this year. Definitely the uh, isolation, um, schools not being in session, um, competitive athletics not being available for a lot of kids. Those things will um, understand right now in a very limited sense, looking at sort of our immediate families or people that we know. um, It'll be up to researchers to look at a much broader spectrum of people and see what the what the trends are. Wouldn't surprise me if this is a particularly bad year for depression, suicides, that kind of thing. And have you seen any trends pertaining to addiction? Yeah, uh, I've seen a number of reports that sort of with increasing urgency uh, talk about the effect that this that the pandemic has had on the opioid problem. It's taken all of the focus away from that. And I think that it's harder for people to go in and and seek help when leaving our homes is taking a risk. I think uh, hospitals for a good chunk of this year have have been um, one of the riskier places to be in. Okay, and do you know how inpatient centers have been grappling with infection risk? Well, I know that there were an awful lot of non-COVID type procedures, um, checkups, follow-up visits, things like that that were done through telemedicine, just by using iPads and uh, FaceTime and that kind of thing. Um, I was, I've actually uh, sat in on a couple of them just for um, other stories I was working on. And, uh, most of the year for me anyway has been covering COVID, but every once in a while I've covered something else. 
And there's always a tie into COVID, even if the story isn't about COVID, it influences, it's influencing right now virtually every aspect of medicine. And speaking more to your experience, what has it been like trying to report on health topics that aren't directly related to COVID-19, especially since everything seems to tie back to that subject? Well, it's, it's interesting you asked. Um, I had a story I started on in January. I had done about a dozen interviews. I thought it was going to be my big project for the year. And by the end of that uh, month of January, it was gone. I, I was completely on COVID, and I don't think I did a non-COVID story for four or five months at least. I just, I guess about a month and a half ago, got to go back to that story um, to finish it off. And um, any reporter can tell you that it's really, it's difficult when you haven't, haven't sort of kept up with the story consistently. When you drop something for a matter of months, all your enthusiasm uh, is sort of drained away, and you, you forget why it was that you were really into it. You lose a lot of momentum. Mark, thank you so much for sharing with us today at Columbia Radio News. You're listening to Columbia Radio News. I'm Chris Riata. The New York City Comptroller predicts as many as one half of all local restaurants will be forced to permanently shut down by the end of the pandemic, losing roughly 159,000 jobs. But one restaurant owner in Washington Heights is adapting to the challenge of endless coronavirus lockdowns. He tells Columbia News reporter Leanne Herter how the lessons he learned as a child in his immigrant family helped prepare him to overcome any obstacles life can bring. Malecon Restaurant in Washington Heights is bright, loud, and warm. A full-height Christmas tree is decorated in the middle of the floor. An employee stands behind a glass partition, cutting into spit-roasted chickens with kitchen shears. Jose Gomez and his three brothers own and run Malecon. I used to go to school, come upstairs, because my mom lives upstairs still, do my homework, come down at 6, more or less, go down to the kitchen, peel some plantains, some yuca, potatoes, dishes, and do some deliveries running because we didn't have a bike. Like many immigrant families, the Gomez's came to America in stages. His sister founded the restaurant in 1987, and after their father died, Jose joined her, their mother, and their other siblings in New York. Suddenly, there were six people living in a one-bedroom apartment just upstairs from the restaurant. Jose says that his sister and brother-in-law were like parents to him. His sister taught him the value of saving with his very first paycheck. She gave me $60, I remember. And she told me, give 20 to your mother, 20 you can keep, and 20 you can save. That was the first lesson that my, my other sister gave me when she gave me the $60. And the first thing that I bought was a jacket. <laughs> Do you remember what the jacket looked like? Yep, green, ugly green. <laughs> Jose credits those early lessons as allowing him to survive the last nine months. Malacón had to close its indoor dining like many restaurants during the spring of 2020. They had to let the majority of their roughly 100 employees go. So 100 lives, 100 lives that uh, they take care of somebody. Somebody takes care of somebody. 
Navigating a pandemic while managing a restaurant requires a resilience that is sometimes a textbook example of an immigrant-run business. Dr. Tzu Tzu is an associate professor at Ryerson University in Toronto. Her research focuses on the successes of immigrant entrepreneurs. They come to a new country, they start everything, many of them start from scratch. And I think many uh, immigrant entrepreneurs, you can see their success come to their resilience, come to their adaptation to the new environment. And with the COVID shock and resilience is super important. Uh, you know, for, you know, you survive of a company, right? Can you go through the downtime? Can you regenerate, not giving up? In May, Jose and his brothers erected an outdoor eating venue. The space is now enclosed under a tent packed with heaters working overtime to keep diners comfortable. Before COVID, Malacon could seat 119 diners. Now, about 16 people can sit outside. It's expensive. <laughs> and it's every single, every single week. I buy every single thing in this, in this restaurant and the bills get high. The little things cost a lot of money. <laughs> Reclosing indoor dining is another hit to an already impacted income. On November 13th, Governor Cuomo issued a 10 p.m. curfew on bars and restaurants. Losing just one hour on their workday had a demonstrable effect. I do the numbers every single day. The numbers were down. How down? I would say 30% down, 30, 25%. Back to Dr. Tsu. She says a robust community connection and social media know-how can help keep businesses afloat. Jose knows his regulars, the usuals at New York Presbyterian just down the block. Customers can walk in and order half a chicken, rice and beans, and be on their way in five minutes. Grubhub connects them with a stream of delivery and pickup orders, and Malacon's Instagram feed, which lists the daily specials, has almost 1,100 followers. Washington Heights is almost 70% Hispanic. For many who come here, like Mercedes Roman, Malacon is a taste of home. Roman doesn't live in the city, but she makes a point to come here at least five times a month. I like everything about the food here. It's awesome. The roasted chicken is the best in town. And the sancocho, everything that you order is good. Customers like Roman are the spirit of Malacon and Jose's family. Last time he closed, he was helped by a small grant from the Federal Payroll Protection Plan. This time, federal funding hangs in the balance. But it's that resiliency that keeps Jose hopeful. But the little money that I can save, he has saved. We feel like we're ready, but uh, we're gonna survive. But uh, I told my brother, told my brother, if you gotta stay here doing rice and beans and just chicken, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm built like that. I'm like a, I'm the warrior of the family. Columbia Radio News, Leanne Herter. Our executive producer today was Ilika Mahajan. Leanne Herter was our senior producer. Senior editor Michelle Quinn worked on our script. Our associate producers were Taylor Jung and Precious Osagarase. And a big thanks to our instructor, Jennifer Venasco, for overseeing the podcast. I'm Chris Riata. And I'm Tori Lutz. From everyone at Columbia Radio News, thanks for listening. <laughs>